everybody. Great to see you tonight. Excited to be here. I'm going to take a few moments and pray and then <clears throat> we will get going with our Bible study for this evening. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's here. Uh, he's empowering our time. We thank you for the truth that he brings. We thank you for teaching us. Thank you for giving us ears to hear. We thank you, God, for revelation tonight. We ask that we would just put ourselves in a position to receive of you. Uh, we ask you to have your way in our midst and that you would speak. You'd speak to our hearts, speak to our spirits. I pray we'd be encouraged tonight. I pray we would be challenged tonight. And I pray for some things to change tonight. We give you thanks for this opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus. Thank you that you're here in our midst. We ask uh, just simply that you have your way. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. Dos Pedro. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Practicing my Spanish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter one. Verses 16 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. All right, thanks. There are a lot of descriptors in there. You can read them all if you want. I'm not going to talk about every one of them, but they're all in there. So if you want to read about them, you can read them. There's a bunch of descriptors about what he's talking about. And the things that he talks about here are worthy of us thinking about them. It is worthy of us to read that, 
to read the descriptors, to read what he's talking about, and to really just consider it, think about it, mull it over. It's worthy of your time. Even if it's five minutes. Even if it's ten minutes. Even if it's two minutes. To read through that and to listen and to hear what he's saying there about what he saw, what he experienced. To hear his story about Jesus. And, and to really think and mull that over a little bit in your mind. And let it sink into you. So these things are worthy to think about. One part of this that I want you to hear is he describes what the Father says to Jesus at the Transfiguration. And he says this, he says, I am well pleased. And I want you to hear that as a father's word to his son. And if you can hear that, I want you to think about you as sons and daughters of our father. I want you to think about yourself as a child of our father. I want you to think about Jesus as being the firstborn among many brethren, meaning us. And I want you to think about those words that the father expresses and how that's a natural expression of a father toward his child. It has a natural expression of a father toward his child. If you grew up in a dysfunctional family, which a lot of people do, you are not alone. Uh, you ha have come through, and you're here today. So congratulations on that, and it's good to see you tonight. <laughs> but uh, if you did grow up in a dysfunctional family, uh, I want you to hear those words. It's normal for a father to say those words. I am well pleased with my child. That's a normal thing. Uh, that's the way fathers generally feel about their children. It's the way fathers generally feel about their kids. And so if you came from a place where you never heard that, or you came from a place where that really wasn't expressed to you for one reason or another, you came from a place where maybe... Uh, you weren't around your dad very much or whatever the case may be, uh, we need to hear those words sometimes. And so again, it's worthy for us to read this and to think about it. And those were the specific words as I was thinking about and I was reading through it that just kept popping out to me. They just kept coming out to me. They just kept like, like uh, just amplified in my mind. It's like, I am well pleased. It's worthy for us to read that. It's worthy for us to read that as not just a specific word to Jesus, but as a really uh, a, a normal feeling that a father has for his child. And I want to emphasize that because I think we can dismiss things like this and say, well, he was just specifically talking about Jesus. Well, <clears throat> he was specifically talking about Jesus, but he was saying it to whom? Well, whoever was there to hear it. At the time, it was Peter, James, and John. They were at the Transfiguration, and so he was letting them know how he felt about his son. And so that they would have an idea about, well, this is how the father feels. This is who the father is. This is an expression of the father's heart, an expression of the father's mind, an expression of the father's will toward Jesus. And so as they would move through the teachings of the gospel, they moved through the teachings that, that would later become commonplace within the church, they would begin to understand, hey, we're his children too. And so these same guys that were witness to this, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, hear him, that they're also 
children. And they're also a part of this family, and they're also a part of this relationship with the Father through Jesus. And so he's pleased. And so if nothing else tonight, maybe you can hear that. Maybe, maybe a little bit of you can hear, uh, you're my child and I'm well pleased. Maybe. And I don't know if you're in a position to actually hear that tonight, or you, you are, you're not. But I just, I pray you would be. And I pray that you'd be able to hear and you'd be able to receive that tonight. Uh, even as you look at all of the descriptors that are put into these verses. I mean, there's tons of them put into these verses. That maybe that's something that would stand out in your heart or stand out in your mind or stand out in your spirit to be able to receive that. And so 2 Peter 1, in these verses 16 through 18, uh, Peter's building a certainty, uh, a faith. And I'm going to describe faith as a certainty. In other words, that, that he is building this and he's saying, okay, this is what happened. This is who we've seen. This is what gives credence to what he has said and what he has said he's going to do. And so anything that Jesus had spoken, anything that Jesus said was going to happen, anything that Jesus was going to do at that point and in the future, where he was giving a certainty to the people that were reading this, giving a certainty to them that they could hear, okay, he has said this, there's witnesses to it. It had been prophesied before. He had been glorified during the transfiguration. We actually were there and saw it. That's what he's attesting to here. And so you can be certain that what he said is going to come to pass. And that's why he's saying all that. That's why all the descriptors. That's why all the stuff that's in there, it's like, well, glory and majesty and power and all of these things. He's letting people know it's like, well... That's who he is. And so if he says all authority has been given me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore, well, you can be certain of that. If he's saying, oh, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You can be certain of that. You can be certain of the things that he said. You can be certain of the things that he's testified to. You can be certain of the things that Jesus had proclaimed before he ascended. In other words, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they will cast out devils. They will lay their hands on sick people and they shall recover. They'll speak in new tongues. All of those things we can be certain of. Peter is attesting to the fact that he who has said these things, he who has proclaimed these things, he who has demonstrated these things in the past will be true to what he has said. Why is he saying that? Well, he saw him in his glory. Why is he saying that? He heard the Father testify of him. Why is he saying that? Because the prophets have testified for it. And testified of the things that he would do. And so it's, it's, it's important for us to understand that when we start talking about the gospel, and I'm going to use that in a general sense, the gospel is no weak thing. It's just not. The gospel is not a weak thing. The gospel is powerful. And the gospel comes in power. And so we can't think of the gospel as passive. You can't think, really think of the gospel as being weak. You can't think of the gospel as being meek. You can't really think of the gospel as being any of those things. The gospel comes in power. And that has been a shortcoming of the modern church is that we try to soft pedal the gospel somehow. 
In other words, let's try to figure out a way to make the gospel the least offensive possible so that more people will feel comfortable and kind of, I don't know, kind of getting up beside the gospel without it offending them and scaring them away. All right. Or whatever their thoughts are on it. I'm making that up, but I want you to understand me that somehow, some way, we've taken it upon ourselves to try and take the gospel and try to form it and try to make it and try to try to 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 piece it together in such a way that people can hear it and just not be offended by it. Well, some people are going to be offended by it. Some people aren't going to like it. Some people don't agree with it. Some people think it's rubbish. Some people think it's not worth their time. Some people don't want to have anything to do with it. While others respond powerfully to it, others can't wait to get a hold of what God has for their lives. Others have been waiting their whole life to hear that and to get a chance to respond to it. Others are willing to dedicate who they are, all that they have to the work of Christ in their life. And so it's always been that way. There's always been people, they're all in it. There's always been people, we don't want anything to do with it. All right, think about Jesus' time. Did every person that heard the gospel respond to the gospel in a positive way? The answer to that is no. I'll give you two examples. Sadducees, Pharisees. I'll give you a third example. Chief priests, scribes. You know, the guys that condemned him to death, those guys, they didn't like it. They didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like the gospel. They didn't like the message of the gospel. The gospel directly threatened their power base that they had, that they had established, curated over a period of years, centuries. That power base had been made for them, and they had been been making sure that it was just preserved. They'd been making sure that it was growing. They'd been making sure that it was fed. And they had this power base that existed, and the gospel directly, directly attacked that and threatened it. They didn't like that. They did not like that. So the religious leaders didn't like it. Nobody that was religious in that group liked it. They didn't like the gospel. Now, who liked the gospel? Bunch of poor people. Yep. Bunch of people that were outcasts. Yeah. Bunch of rejects. Yep. People that were in need. Yes. Your average person, did they like the gospel? Yeah, most of them. You feed them. Do they like it? They like it more when you feed them. Right. Do you heal them? They're going to get healed. Do you like that? Yeah, they like that. Who are the people that respond to the gospel? Well, when Jesus would go into a town, he had a basic message, repent and believe the gospel. That, that wasn't some fancy message that was convincing everybody, okay? That was not it. But he would also go into that town, and he'd heal every sick person that came to him. He'd also go in that town, and he'd drive out demons when he was in that town. He'd also go in that town, and, and, and miracles, signs, and wonders would take place. The dead were raised. And so there was a power that came with the preaching of the gospel. But understand that, that those people that were directly threatened by the gospel could ignore every miracle. They could, ignore, they could ignore every manifestation of power. They could ignore every person that was delivered. They could ignore every healing. They could ignore all those things. Why? Because their cheese was threatened, and they were going to shut this thing down. All right. The gospel is no weak thing. And so the gospel can stand against opposition. 
The gospel was never meant to be fashioned in such a way that no one is ever offended by it. It wasn't meant for that. There were going to be, and, and Jesus talked about it, there was going to be people who didn't want anything to do with it. Right. It was going to divide families. Remember him saying that? You know, parents would rise against kids, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers all rise against each other. It would There would be division in families over it. It was not meant to be fashioned in such a way that everybody was just going to be, yeah, let's all get on board. That sounds great. I think the gospel sounds great. You might think the gospel sounds great, but there's always people that don't. And it's not up to us to try to figure out a way how to package and market it. We already went through that. You know, we were part of an organization for a couple of years. They were experts in marketing the gospel. And we were part of that organization. And I went and got trained by that organization. And they, do, they know how to market anything. They can market the gospel. They can market whatever we're doing. You can market whatever you want. The problem is, is that it's just not the way it was done. And it's not the way it is done. The gospel comes in power. Somebody look at uh, Romans 1.16. Romans Right. Now, notice what he says. What's the first words he says? For I am not what? Shame. Right. Well, understand, why would he need to say that? Because people were ashamed of it. People were ashamed. People recognized it, not everybody liked it. People recognized it, not everybody liked what they were saying. People recognized that that message was rejected by some people. And they, they would shrink back in shame from it because they don't want to be rejected and they don't want people not liking them and they don't want people not, not agreeing with them. And so Paul had to make a positive statement on this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is power. It's power. And the gospel was meant to come in power. And I was thinking about what I was just talking about and I probably sound like I'm like 90 years old, some crotchety old guy, but I'm telling you that, that, and it might be stupid. You can even think it's stupid. Well, shouldn't you market, in a best practice, just to market the best way you can what you're trying to do? In some cases, sure. But in a lot of cases, no. Because it isn't about that. And it has nothing to do with that. We're not trying to market anything. Because we're not trying to sell it. We're offering it. We're giving it away to anybody who wants it. And so, and so the idea behind this is that, you know, I'm not trying to be stupid. I'm not trying to be obtuse. I'm not trying to, to, I'm not trying to neglect all of the great advancements we as human beings have made in the last 2,000 years and ignore those advancements. I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm trying to look back and say, you know what? We're not that much smarter than they were, if at all. Probably no smarter than they were. That's a fallacy, just by the way, that we're smarter than the generations that came before us. That is a lie. 
because uh, those guys that developed like the math theory that we're still using today, thousands of years later, those were pretty smart guys. All right. Those ancient mathematicians, they're pretty smart. And those astronomers, they were able to figure out orbits and planets and star movements and 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 all of that kind of stuff. And us, us moving through the cosmos using what a rock and a string or something. I mean, how smart were those guys? Pretty darn smart. All right, and I'm, I'm, I'm just simplifying this, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Now, I took, a, I took a graduate level math course when I was in college, and the whole math course was solving ancient problems. Like looking at ancient problems. Okay, how was this theorem developed? How was this idea developed? How did they figure out what these, the uh, area of a circle was? How was it figured out that what's the area and what's the volume of a sphere and all this other stuff? Well, those all had to be solved at some point. They, everybody, you know, that, that was just something. These are shapes that you can see. So how big is that? How do you define that mathematically? And so it was just a whole course on that in figuring out, piecing together, building equations and theorems to do just that. There are some pretty smart people. And so I, I want to just say that, that we're not really, I mean, we have more knowledge in a sense. We have more knowledge at our fingertips for sure. And, and we have a lot more knowledge that we can access as a people. Uh, and you think about, you got a phone in your hand. It's got almost unlimited knowledge on it, right? Like you can just get on the internet and figure it out. Well, then why are you playing games on it 90% of the time, right? Because we're not really accessing the knowledge of the universe. It's just true. So, so I don't know like how to define that, but all I'm trying to say is this, is that there's some pretty smart people. And this is how they handled the gospel. This is what they did with the gospel. And they turned their world upside down doing it this way, the way they do it in the scriptures. And so if I want to learn something, I want to figure out how it's done, I think I'm going to look at those guys. I want to see lives changed. I want to see disciples made. I want to see people making decisions for Christ. I want to see the power of God manifest in our midst. I want to see God doing miracles, signs, and wonders. I want to see people healed. I want to see people set free. I want to see deliverance. I want to see the dead raised. I want to see uh, whatever's going to happen, going to happen. I want to see the miraculous. And so because I want to see that, I'm going to look at this in a way that they looked at it, is that the gospel is no weak thing. It doesn't need my help to market it. It doesn't. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's going to be people that are going to want it, and there's going to be people that don't want it, just like there was in the days of Jesus. And I'm not going to preach it any better than Jesus. I'm not going to do it any better than Jesus. I'm not going to, I'm not going to see anything better probably than anything he ever did, ever. And, and even it was Jesus doing it, some people still rejected it. It was Jesus saying it, and some people didn't want anything to do with it. And there were others that did. So I guess I accept that. And I got to look at things through that lens and understand that the best of the best has shown me how it's done. And it ain't 100% because people still have free will and people are still going to do whatever it is they're going to do because they can make that choice. All right. I made my choice. I appreciate that. Somebody else makes a different choice. I can still appreciate that because at least they had a choice just like me. And so if somebody decides against, that's okay. Somebody decides for, 
even better. Let's pour into them. Let's see some disciples made. Let's see God change the world one person at a time. Let's do it. That's the way they did it. Let's do that. So the gospel comes with power. And you think about the, the transfiguration. I want you to think about it because that's what he's describing here. Peter's describing his experience with Jesus at the transfiguration. You remember what happened at transfiguration? Went up on a mountain, right? And so they were up on whatever this was, hill, mountain, whatever it was. And Jesus was transfigured before them. It was Peter, James, and John. And he turned all white, big bright light. His, his, it says his clothes were whiter than anybody could ever wash them. So he's, he's, he's like, got all this white. And then he's talking to two guys. Remember who they were? Moses and Elijah. Right, so he's talking to Moses and Elijah. And and so this is all going on in front of Peter, James, and John. So Peter, James, and John, they didn't know what to do. If you know the story, you know what happens. Peter, James, and John's like, okay, God, here's what we're going to do, Jesus. We're going to build three tents, and we're going to build one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and we'll just have tents up here. How's that sound? <laughs> Nobody wants tents. That, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And the Bible pretty much says that. He just didn't know what else to say. Because it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming what they saw there. But there was a power that took place for Peter, James, and John to experience. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And we beheld his glory. You ever wonder about that? Well, he beheld his glory right there. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They did behold his glory. They, they beheld his glory right on that mountain. And so there was a shift that took place on that mountain. There was a shift. And a significant shift in our understanding of Jesus today that took place on that mountain. And what I mean by that is that a new understanding was created that day. And they didn't get it right away. Like I said, Peter, James, they didn't get it. They were standing there overwhelmed. All they could think of, uh, let's make some tents or something. I don't know. But that wasn't really what needed to happen. And, and Jesus, he didn't want any tents. But he took those guys there for a reason. They were there as eyewitnesses to what was happening. That's why they were there. That they were to witness that. They were to see it, and then they were to be able to report on it as eyewitnesses to what they beheld. But they saw his glory. They saw it. And that there was a new understanding that happened there. Because Jesus said in a couple of places, and, and people get all confused and weird about this, he said some, some people that are here right now won't die until they see the Son of Man come in his glory. Do you know when that was said? In timeline? When did Jesus say that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus saying that? It was right before the transfiguration. <laughs> now, so the transfiguration is a fundamental moment because he had just proclaimed that no, some of you aren't going to die till you see the Son of Man come in his glory. Well, Peter, James, and John went up onto a mountain and saw him come in his glory. But yes, you're right. In, in a bigger time frame, you're right, but I'm saying, you know, like specifically right in this time frame, that, that okay, there was something significant enough about it that Jesus had prophesied about it before it happened. 
And he's like, you, some of you aren't going to pass on. Some of you aren't going to die until you see the Son of Man come his way. Well, they saw it. There he was. And so that was significant. And there was a shift in that because Jesus had come in his glory right before their eyes. They saw him for who he is. And what's important about that for us is this. That's who Jesus is. That he is in his glory. And so when he says, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth, all authority is been given him in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. Based on what? The authority that Jesus not only has been given, but also pours out to us. See, that kind of authority that comes from that place of glory, that comes from that place of power, that comes from that place of, of complete and utter manifestation of God, that, that's where we come from. That's, that, that's where the glory, that's where the power, that's where the call, that's where the go ye therefore, that's where all of that comes from, is from there. Now, significantly, he's talking to Moses and Elijah, who they represent? Law and the prophets, right? So that's significant, that all right, this is the fulfillment of all that. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. He's from the fulfillment of all that. And so he became everything. He became all in all and everything. So, and so when Peter talks about, he talks about the idea of eyewitness testimony. They were made, some of the Bibles say, I don't know if your translation says that, but they were made into eyewitnesses. And that word for eyewitness is used only once in the New Testament. It's right there. And it has a very, it has a kind of a weird meaning because what it means is, it is that I, the word represents and the meaning of the word is as the highest level of initiation in mysteries. So in other words, there was something about that moment. And that's why Peter's bringing it up again here in his epistle. There was something about that moment that initiated those three. Those three, yeah, those three fishermen. Those three guys. Those three non-theologians. Those three non-educated Bible school people. Those three non non-religious people, those three fishermen guys, into the highest of mysteries. In other words, they saw something, they witnessed something, they were partaking in something that should be life-altering. And for them it was. And I just want to believe, because Again, Peter includes this in his epistle, the general epistle to the church. This is the moment that is life-altering for us. This is that moment when Jesus shows us this is who he is. This is that moment where we put our trust in him and we say, all right, God, do that in me and through me. I want to see your glory. 
I want to see your power. I want to see all of that manifest in and through my life. It's that moment. It's that moment where there's an expectation that this is now. There's that moment where there's an expectation is that we're not waiting on anything. There's that moment where there's an expectation of this is who Jesus is in me right here and right now. He showed himself to us already. And so you say, well, he showed himself to Peter, James, and John. Right. They're the eyewitnesses. They're the ones that are showing us. And it's still the life-changing moment. Those guys went on to do the work. I mean, John, he ended up, he was the only one that outlived the rest of them. He was the only one that didn't die a martyr's death, but received a revelation that we have the apocalypse. And then you got Peter, who was martyred. You got James, who was martyred. But they went on to do the work. Something life-altering had taken place. And did it all manifest at once? Nope. Did they understand it all right then? No, they wanted to build tents, remember? But something about it stuck with them, and it became a centerpiece of the glory of Jesus manifest in us and in the church. That's what it became. That that was the moment. And so they had to revisit that moment and they had to revisit that that point in time to understand, okay, what was he really showing us through that? Well, he was showing us his glory. It was a proof of Jesus, of the truth of what he spoke. Like when he said, you've seen the miracles I've done, you'll do even greater. Well, there was a proof that that's the truth. When, when Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, for I'm with you, this is the proof that what he said is true. This is the proof that the, the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the proof of that. That when we read, resist the devil and he will flee from you, this is the proof of that power and that authority. You will trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every work of the devil, Jesus said. This is the proof that that word is true. And so by him showing this kind of power and by him showing this kind of glory and by him showing this kind of, a, of an, just an outburst of the power of God in and through his life to eyewitnesses who entered into that, that moment with him is the proof to them and in turn being preached to us is the proof that what he says is true. And so he makes the statement, we, we didn't follow or follow out any devised fables or fictions. We didn't do that. And he doesn't specify which fictions. They could be heathen, they could be Jewish, Christian, whatever, very general. Very general. And all that says is we don't need to make stuff up. We got plenty of truth that we need to believe. You don't need to make anything up. If, if you could set your heart and set your mind 
on really just believing what we already know. If you just want to set your heart and set your mind on believing the truth that's already been revealed, there's plenty of that for us to set our heart and set our mind on that we don't even need to make anything up. And Peter's just making that clear. He's like, we didn't follow anything like that. We didn't follow cleverly devised or or we didn't follow made-up stuff, meaning man's wisdom, meaning you know people that are creative and people that just make stuff up or whatever. That's not what we did. And he wanted to make sure people understood that. Because, I mean, there were false teachers there in his day. There are people teaching stuff that didn't need to be taught. There are people teaching stuff that they're making up. There are people teaching stuff that wasn't right. There are people teaching stuff that didn't make any sense. There are people teaching all kinds of stuff. And what Peter says, we already have enough stuff to believe that if we could actually believe it, we'd see the whole world change. And here's a guy that if a shadow would touch people, they'd be healed as he walked down the street. Yeah, he's talking about changing the world. But you got to believe what Jesus said. you got to believe what we already know. you got to believe what already been told to us. What's already been poured out. What's already been being poured out into our lives. That's what we need to believe. You don't need to make anything up. There's plenty of truth. And not only truth, but truth that's been verified and truth that has been proven and truth that has been attested to and truth that we have already seen and those that stood before us were able to see physically with their eyes to understand that he who has said it is true and able to bring it about. That's exactly what it is. One who's received honor and glory from the Father. So Peter's story is front and center here. This is Peter's story. Now, now I'm not a big fan of Peter. I think he's kind of uh, whatever. I mean, he just did what he did. But he was one of Jesus' favorites. So what am I going to say? Jesus knows better than me. So I'm obviously wrong about Peter. But Jesus, I mean, he was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so he was someone that Peter, that Jesus loved and, and, t- and took into his inner circle. So obviously he was trustworthy. Obviously somebody and God used him later on and everything. I know that. But I was just talking, I think I was talking to Cam today about this. You think about Peter when he shows up at the house of Cornelius? You ever read that story for what it says? I mean, here's a guy that argue with God all the time, right? It's like before he even gets to the house of Cornelius, God drops a sheet with a bunch of animals on it. He hears a voice. He's in a vision. He's in an active vision, right? Here's a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, by no means, Lord. Like, what? What are you talking about? I've never eaten anything unclean. Uh, Yeah. Okay, you're in an active vision. It's God speaking. He tells you to get up and do something. Your answer is no. Why? Because God's obviously wrong because those are unclean animals. Wow. And so God has to say, well, whatever I say is clean is clean. All right. So he, he learns the lesson, gets it the second or third time, whenever it was, three times. So he gets to the house of Cornelius. Think about why he stands up there. He's like, uh, hey, 
Cornelius called for him in a vision. Angel appears, sends people. There's somebody speaking to Peter. Vision appears. He knows these guys are coming. It's all set up by the Holy Spirit. He ends up, he ends up at Cornelius' house, all a bunch of Gentiles, right? What does he say when he first gets up? Yeah, I'm not recommending you start any sermon this way. You ready? As you, as you people know, it's really against the rules for me to be here right now with all you sinners and all you unclean people. And you all know that I'm not really even supposed to be here right now. But by a special dispensation by God in a vision that he showed me three times, which I didn't believe the first couple, but I finally got it the third time. I'm standing here with you losers right now because God told me I had to. <laughs> Who wants to know Jesus? I mean, just read it for what, you know, I mean, you can read, he didn't exactly say that, but that's the way I read it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> I mean, it's easier to read it and, you know, kind of gloss over everything, like, oh, wow, you know, he's just orating over there, you know. No, no, there's some rude stuff in that. All right? So, whatever. I don't know why I'm talking about that, but Peter... Peter has a story, and his story, Jesus is right in the middle of it. Peter has a story because he was right in the middle of this, that whole story, that whole thing, that whole ministry of Jesus. Peter was right in the middle of it. He answered the call. Not everybody did. Not everybody answered the call. Peter answered the call. And so he came after Jesus, and he started following after him, and and for over three years, he's learning from him, and he's growing, and then he gets sent out and do miracle signs and wonders himself. Then he's empowered. Then Jesus breathes into him in John chapter 20. Then he's in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit's poured out on him. And he begins to speak in tongues. And then he preaches after. And he and, and preaches on the day of Pentecost. And there's, you know, 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. And they get baptized. And the church is born at the preaching of, uh, of Peter right there. All right. All right. That's his story. And so it's his story of Jesus he's making known to people. He's making known uh, through apostolic teaching. He's making known through personal experience, through God experience, because he saw Jesus for who he is. And you can say he saw Jesus for who he is every day he was with him, but he really saw Jesus for who he is on the, on the Transfiguration Day because that's who Jesus is now. And that was the significance of that day is that there was something that had to change in the hearts and the minds of the people that were calling Jesus their king. Is that all of a sudden he's not just this guy that's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's someone that God has poured out and is just full of glory, full of power, and full of authority. And there was a shift in thinking that took place that day. And I mean, Jesus still went through the passion. He still went to Jerusalem. He still was crucified. He still rose again, all the rest of those kind of things. And, and even after this, if you think about it, Peter denied him, Right? I mean, so it didn't all click right at once. But I guarantee as he's writing this epistle, it had already clicked. 
because they were moving in the power of God. It already clicked because they were moving the authority of God. It already clicked because they were moving in the glory of God. It already clicked because they were believing Jesus at what he said. It already clicked because they had seen already miracle signs, wonders. They would seen even greater things. And that, those are the greater things that Jesus was talking about. I mean, Peter walking in his shadow healing people, that was a greater thing. Right? We don't see that anywhere else. That was something that, that God was doing uniquely through the apostles, through Peter right there. And so he was experiencing these things that Jesus had said, believing him at his word, believing that he has the power to do it, believing that he has the authority to do it, believing that the glory of God is pouring out through him into his life. He's seeing it, experiencing it, knowing it. The shift came. It just took a little while to take root. New expectations came, but they took a little while to take root. He saw Jesus in power. You see, Acts 10.38 tells us about Jesus. Acts 10.38 is part of that sermon that Peter was given in the house of Cornelius. <laughs> How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Well, that was his earthly ministry. And that, that verse describes how Jesus went about his earthly ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's more. And so power, more power was given to Jesus upon his return home. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says, For ye shall receive power. That's Jesus speaking to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven. So but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses here in Samaria, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But... That would take place, that would take place on the day of Pentecost. And so get the picture of Jesus. Jesus is, he's fulfilled his earthly ministry. Jesus is crucified. Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus ascends. And I don't know about you, but you, you think about he ascends, he's going back home. And what's he thinking about when he's going back home? He's thinking, how can I, how can I empower these people to get the work done that I've called them to? That's what he's thinking. He's thinking about you, which is awesome. And so the day of Pentecost comes, and he's like, I know how. And he just pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. Pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. They start speaking in tongues, start prophesying, start speaking the gospel, start preaching. Everybody's hearing him in their own language. Peter stands up, preaches, and a few thousand people come to know Jesus that day and are baptized. That's how we're going to do it. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, uh, Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, he says, for, for the kingdom of God, this is the rule and reign of Jesus right here on the earth, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. That's 1 Corinthians 4.20. It's a matter of power. Amen. Yeah. So, Jesus was like, all authority in heaven has been given unto me, right? Yeah. And then he had to have that so he could go kick the devil's booty and then come back victorious. And then give it to us. Yeah. I mean, he gave it to us because he had it before he went and did that. But Right. Right. So he took care of business after his crucifixion. 
He took care of business, powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness. He took care of it. And then he pours out that power on the church. So that's the power. That's the authority. That's the glory. But Peter had already seen it. James and John had already seen it. I just don't know that they understood it when they saw it. Well, they obviously didn't because they wanted to build tents. And that wasn't it. And so they didn't understand it. And, and it wasn't until later when everything is poured out and they, they see what Jesus did, then they understood. They're like, wow. Wow, and now I know what that means. Now I know that everything he said is right. Everything he said is true. Everything he said is doable. Everything he said is coming to pass. Everything he said is backed up. Everything he said, there's power to it. Everything he said, there's majesty to it. Everything he said, there's glory to it. I mean, he had to think back once all this had taken place in the church, the power had been poured out into the church. He had to look back and say, that's the seal right there. It's happening. He showed me. And through showing Peter, and if you can get this, if you can receive it, he's showing us. They're the witnesses for us because they saw it. They reported on it. They gave it to us. Yeah. So also at Jesus' baptism, God said the same words. They're not exactly the same, but yeah. They saw, and there was a, there was a different group that saw that too. There were more people that saw that. They saw the the Holy Spirit in bodily form as a dove descend upon him, but he didn't change. They didn't see him for who he was until the transfiguration. They knew that the Father approved of him. They knew the Father loved him. They knew they should listen to him, and they knew he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, which was true which is what Acts 10.38 says. So he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. They knew all of those things, but they didn't see him actually transfigured in front of them until the transfiguration. They didn't see his glory like that. And that's the shift. That was the shift. So uh, a couple of verses, and we'll end here. Matthew 16.28. Matthew 16.28. Somebody read that in Mark 9, 1. Mark 9, 1. What's Matthew 16, 28? Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Right. Mark 9, 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All right. And the only reason, and I quoted... Semi quoted these verses earlier. Part of I want to read that is because Jesus considered this. This was regarded by Jesus as a shift. And that's what I want you to hear. This is a shift. It's a shift in perspective and it's a shift in understanding. That you see him coming in his glory, his power, and his majesty. And as the church... We need more of that, I believe. We got enough cuddly Jesus. We need some majestic, powerful, in his glory, and power Jesus.
Because that's the Jesus. He's the one who's empowered us. He's the one who has sent us. He's the one that has gifted us. He's the one that is continuing to lead us. He is the one who's given us authority. And I know it's the same person. But we need to see him. We need to shift in our thinking in order to really move into the power and into the anointing that he has for the church. That's what I believe. And so I want to encourage you toward that. There's a reason Peter is sharing this. And you can try to figure out a different reason if you want. Uh, I don't know there is one. He's sharing this because there needs to be a shift in us. It's the shift he experienced later, mind you. But it's the shift we need. If we're going to be effective to do the work that God's called us to do. All right, let's take a moment to respond. I, and I just want to encourage you, uh, if I lost you somewhere along the way, apologize. Uh, that wasn't my intent. But if you got anything out of this, uh, just get some more Jesus tonight. Yeah. And let him reveal who he is to you. And I know he's love, and I know he's grace, and I know he's mercy. And maybe you need that tonight. We'll receive that tonight. But I also know he's full of power, majesty, and glory, authority. And he's in the business of getting you ready and sending you too. And maybe you need to hear that and receive that tonight. But Heavenly Fathers, we, uh, we just we sit here tonight in awe of who you are. Uh, you took a bunch of guys that were uneducated, really didn't have a lot of training and leadership or anything of the, of the sort, and you empowered them, and they changed their known world. And I just want to just be in awe of that. That's who you are. That no matter how we think of ourselves, how I think of myself, how each of us think of ourselves, uh, your power, your glory, your majesty, that's more than enough to empower us to change the people and to change the situations and to change the circumstances and to be used by you in people's lives around us. And so that's what I pray for tonight. I pray that we would get a taste of you, we get a taste of your glory, we get a taste of your majesty, we get a taste of your power, and that you would use us as agents, as catalysts, that we might see change in the places we go, and the people we see, we might see change in the environment around us. For God, that's the business you're in. You're in the business of bringing hope and bringing life. You're in the business of seeing people set free and delivered. You're in the business of seeing people made whole. And you've made a decision to use us for that. And so I pray that we would find ourselves in the midst of what you want to do in and through our lives. 
I pray more Jesus. I pray more of your power. I pray more of your majesty. I pray more of your glory. I pray, God, a shift in our thinking, our expectations of what we think you can do or how you're going to do it. I pray you'd shift that. I pray you'd shift us, God, in, in the ways that we're going to see just the possibilities that are in front of us, the possibilities of stuff that might happen, the possibilities of what you may do in any given situation. I pray a shift to some bigger thinking in our hearts and our minds, God, in our lives. I want to think bigger. I want to think more powerful. I want to think, God, miraculously. I want to think, God, beyond that which I can figure out myself. I want to think the, the miracle, the sign, the wonder, the power, the glory to be made manifest, God, in my life, through my life. And not to be satisfied with the whole hum or not to be satisfied with the status quo, but to actually connect with the God of the universe, actually connect with the Lord God in his glory, his majesty, and his might through me. Through me. Through me. Yeah. So I just ask God that you'd have your way. Through me. Through me. I pray for bigger thoughts. I pray for a bigger mind. I pray for a bigger expectation. I pray for a bigger faith. I pray, Lord God, for a bigger, I know this is going to happen. I pray for just a bigger understanding even of what you want to do, what you want to say, and how you want to do it. I just say, God, have your way in me, through me. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Let's read by saying amen. 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 God bless you tonight. Thanks for coming. Good to see you. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.